Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 488. I'm 76 years old, and I'm more excited about the next 25 years than I was about anything that I've done up to this point. I really am. And it's not just some artificial kind of positive mental attitude. I just see so many opportunities. If you want more joy, give joy to others. The fully spiritual life is the very process of creating, not accumulating, it's being, not having. Your dream may be too big if you haven't included anyone else in achieving it. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown. This is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. For I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a great first step. In fact, I think it's a must. And so does my guest today. His name is Dan Miller. Special to me for so many reasons, not the least of which he was the first ever guest on this podcast over 10 years ago. And he's got a new book out called An Understanding Heart. It's a book without a subtitle. Aren't books supposed to have subtitles? Not this one. That's just one of several unconventional decisions Dan decided to make in the creation of this book. We'll talk about some of those. And I'll also ask Dan to share about why he believes that no matter what stage of life you're in, you should always make your future bigger than your past. The importance of sometimes exercising creative skills just for the joy they bring us how to best view the expression of gratitude, passion as a magnet, and much, much more. If, like Dan and me, you're passionate about reading, learning, and topics like leadership, personal and professional growth, habits, productivity, and more, then you are the perfect candidate to become the next member of the Read to Lead community. And you can do that with a simple Read to Lead Plus membership that's just $9 a month. In fact, you can try it free for two weeks when you go to jeffbrown.me. I publish exclusive content there. We have a guest expert visit us each month to do some training. I lead my own Ask Me Anything session once a month. A new business book summary is published each week. There are chances to be featured in front of the hundreds of members that are there. And again, just for the cost of a couple of cups of coffee a month, nine bucks free for the first two weeks to make sure you like it. Again, just go to jeffbrown.me to find out more about it. Dan Miller is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, 48 Days to the Work You Love. Over 140,000 people have subscribed to his weekly newsletter, and his 48 Days podcast consistently ranks in the top 1% of all podcasts worldwide. His 48 Days Eagles community is viewed as an example around the world for those seeking to find the work and life they love. On his weekly podcast, Dan encourages listeners to act on the belief that they can find or create work that is meaningful fulfilling, and profitable. His new book is called An Understanding Heart. Well, Dan, it is a, a thrill, a treat always for me to have you on the Read to Lead podcast. I think this is visit number four now, which puts you in rare territory. Uh, probably not a big surprise. Uh, when you're guest number one, 
I got a head start on everybody, didn't I? That's right. That's right. Well, I'm loving the new book. It's the kind of book, you know, three or four page entries. What is it? 95, 96 entries. You can jump in whenever you need to get some real good nugget out of it and then come back to it again later. Or you can sit down as I have done oftentimes and read, you know, five or six at a time. I really love what you've done with it. I love how it's uh, fashioned, how it's created, how it feels in my hand, all those nerdy things that book lovers (laughs) like. We'll get to some of that here in just a bit. But I want to start off by just asking you about uh, some of the content. And and your faith comes out in this book, page after page after page. And there's in one entry, a, a question you get from one of your podcast listeners around the Christian ideal of engaging in, in lifelong self-denial and reconciling that with the desire to want to improve yourself, to want to, I think as Gay Hendricks puts it, live in your zone of genius. So how do you as a creator and an author and a person who speaks on doing what you love and finding your passion, how do you reconcile those, those two things, those two ideas? Boy, that, that's, that's a big concept because I was raised in a very conservative, legalistic, religious mm. environment, you know, Amish Mennonite background. So, yeah, we were just not expected to enjoy life as we have it here today, but just to try not to screw up too much. And then someday we'll go to heaven and everything will be great. I mean, that was kind of the theology, the overriding theology. And I thought, wait a minute, how does that make sense? And as I studied scripture myself, I thought, well, there's some pieces in here that I think we've overlooked. So when it comes to this idea of self-denial, I think we have misinterpreted what that term means. Mm -hmm. To just totally ignore who I am, how God has created me, and somehow try to figure out what he might be wanting me to do that is likely to be totally different than what I know about myself. I Man, I can't get my head around that concept. It doesn't make any kind of sense. Mm. You know, if you're, uh, when I look at my children, I don't want them to try to mysteriously figure out what I want them to do. I want to help them understand how they're wired, what their deepest joys are, what their skills and talents and passions are, and develop those. So I don't think there's a contradiction there at all, mm. moving into that. Now, true, it probably stretches some people's theology to kind of go where I've gone, but I, I've had a wonderful, wonderful ecumenical journey on my own faith walk. It's always changing, always evolving. And so I, I just welcome the journey. But for me, that idea of figuring out what your passions are, what gives you joy, and then be really good in those seems to have a stronger influence and witness to people around us, if you would choose that term, Mm. than trying to just be miserable doing some elusive thing that I'm not quite sure of. Mm. I've certainly spent enough of my life doing those elusive things that I'm not quite (laughs) quite sure of. I'm glad to be somewhat <laughs> past that now, for sure. Um, I, I love the quote for, uh, this quote from the book that says, always make your future bigger than your past. Uh, wh- why is that such an important idea to you? You know, it is. That, that's a big idea for me. <laughs> I mean, as, as we speak, I'm 76 years old mm. and I want my future. I mean, I'm more excited about the next 25 years than I was about anything that I've done up to this point. I really am. And it's not just some artificial kind of positive mental attitude. I just see so many opportunities to create, to uh, have an impact, to have a positive influence, to engage with other people and their thinking. I mean, that's such an ex- exciting space. But I think when people think that, okay, I've retired as an example. So now everything meaningful is behind me. I mean, we see what happens very quickly. Those people deteriorate physically. 
you've essentially told your body, I don't need you anymore. And we see those people deteriorate and die. I mean, so often it's within two and a half years after they retire from work where there was no signs of any kind of deterioration prior to that. But there's a, a subtle mind thing that happens if we don't have a clear purpose. So that's really what I'm alluding to here with that. Always make your future bigger than your past. Have a clear purpose. If you have money and friends, it'll take you so far. But if you don't have a purpose, that's really a debilitating concept or debilitating factor in your life. And I want to, at age 95, have a clear sense of purpose for what I'm going to do in the years to come. And even though it may seem artificial to collapse you know, chronological years like that, yeah, I, I really believe that I can at any point anticipate a bigger future than my past. I think I'm guilty with my nieces and nephews on something that you admitted being guilty of when it comes to your 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 children and, and now your your grandchildren. And that's seeing a piece of creativity or something they're really good at and then trying to encourage them to find a way to monetize. <laughs> that, oh yeah. That skill. You know, I've got a niece that uh, loves to make things, scarves and purses and, and like set up an Etsy store, yada yada yada. There you go. Uh, what's what's the value of having a creative skill? that we exercise just for the joy that it, that it brings us and, and, and not some monetary reward. Well, I've got a daily reminder of that right here in my own house with my wife, Joanne. <laughs> <laughs> Joanne is a wonderful artist and I do exactly what you just described. I look at it and think, oh my gosh, you know, we can frame that, put a price <laughs> on it, get Jaclay prints of that. You know, we can mm-hmm. make m- mouse pads with that image <laughs> on it. I, I'm, I'm ready to go. And she's like, babe, I don't care. And then what happens too, mm. and this used to just really just, I, I just couldn't get my head around it. You will have somebody walk into our house that, oh my gosh, that painting is beautiful. Well, you mm. can have it. She just gives it to them. <laughs> it, it doesn't even register with her. Gee, that's a $3,000 painting. She just doesn't think like that. Mm. So I really have a, a firsthand example of that just for the joy of creating. Mm. And I think there's something really childlike and pure about that because I know how I'm wired. Yeah, I'm wired to think, all right, you know, if I write this book and we sell, you know, 50,000 copies or a million copies or whatever, start to quantify that. Mm. Now, the, the book we're talking about here is a pretty good example of my pushing back against that tendency in myself mm. and understanding how, because I've done it so differently, it's so different. You know, that soft imitated leather cover, bookmark in it, color all the way through and all that. It doesn't make monetary sense, but mm. there's nothing I've ever put out that I've been more proud of or had more fun creating mm. than this. So there's more joy involved in this is more a joy project, a passion project, than it is a good business decision by far. (laughs) You share a bit about gratitude more than once in the book. And I loved the mortgage broker story, the guy that in 21 years of helping people, you were the first to show this person uh, gratitude for basically failing to get you in in the mix of uh, of a house you wanted. How do you view the expression of gratitude? Because I thought it was very unique. Well, and that was an example when we were moving from Tennessee to Florida, we came down, found a house, and just on a whim, I said, boy, let's just go ahead and get this. We had made no preparation for it at all. Mm. Contacted the mortgage broker to process it. He dropped everything, spent 24 hours with his whole team working on it. He said, there's just not a way to make it work like you want it to work. Mm. So I thanked him and we went on. But then I did. I sent him a gift and he 
put up a little video immediately and he says, wow, that's really amazing. You know, I don't often get that. And I asked him that question. How often have people come back to you and thanked you when you weren't able to help them? And he said, never in 21 hmm. years had anybody expressed gratitude for that before. Hmm. I thought, wow, how short-sighted because I may go back to this guy again, which I did several hmm. months later. But to know that somebody spent their professional time, even though it didn't come out to my advantage, I still need to express gratitude for that. But gratitude is is just, I mean, it's a magic elixir, Jeff. Mm. I just see it evidence every day. I mean, I, I'm very conscious about it. The first thing I do when I get out of bed in the morning is I walk through the house all by myself. It's quiet. Joanne's a late sleeper. So I have time in the morning alone. And I walk through and I verbally express gratitude out loud. Mm. You're kind of a quasi prayer, but just express gratitude. It just helps my set my mind for the day. But then when I meet people, it's a natural response to express gratitude. You know, when my yard guys come and make the yard look beautiful, I'm not going to criticize, hey, you missed a weed over here. I'm going to thank them for what mm. they did. Mm. And it so accelerates the, 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 the relationships so that if there's something unusual that I want done, they're happy to do it because gratitude has paved the way. And the same thing is true in my marriage relationship. Mm. If I express gratitude, Wow. I mean, my wife is a great example of that. Mm. You know, we go out to dinner a lot. It's just the two of us, our kids are grown. Never does she fail to thank me for that experience when we come home. Thank mm. you. Thank you for dinner. Mm. You know, when I clean up the dishes, she thanks me for it. Mm. So we've just built it in as a natural kind of thing. And it grows. It's like, it's like exercising a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. But it just seems to such a common sense way to make your life easier express gratitude. You've challenged me and just your answer, because I'm thinking about the guys who mow my lawn and how often once they're finished, I'm, I'm looking for what did they miss? What did they do uh -oh. wrong? You know, what they, you know, I'm like, no, Jeff, no, Jeff. That's not the attitude they have. Um, talk about this concept, Dan, of, of passion as a magnet. You, you use the term magnet, and then you also talk about a fire, I think, a, a, as another metaphor for this, and just being the kind of person that people would, would travel to see. When you are excited about something, when you are really committed to a cause, to making a difference, it is attractive. People want to hitch their way into your star. We have a son, Jared, who, you know, who lived in Africa for many years. He went into an area of work to help these widowed ladies, ladies who had been made widows by the genocide in Rwanda, to try to help them out. Well, there's no money in that directly. Now, he figured out a way to actually have them help generate money to fund the whole thing that they were doing and get paid well for it, which was another story. But the idea that he was doing something so admirable like that, he had interns and uh, people from Rhode Island School of Design come over, Pepperdine, Vanderbilt come over just to help him because they were so excited about what he was doing mm. in terms of developing a micro enterprise in Africa like that. But it was his passion that mm. attracted other people to be involved. It wasn't that they were going to somehow get accolades for it or certainly pay for it, but his passion was just that attractive. When I see the things we do in 48 days, you know, we've got masterminds and online communities and all that. We have volunteers standing in line who consider it an honor to be chosen to give be given an area of responsibility with no pay. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's really amazing. And I certainly don't want to take advantage of people, but people really see it in that way, that it's an honor and a privilege to have a position of responsibility because they catch the tales of my passion about what we're doing. Well, related to the, the community, 
I know that you've been a part of a mastermind over the years, and, and I kind of view the 48 Days community as a mastermind, though that may not be the traditional definition of it, I guess. I don't know. You can share more about that if you like, but what's your philosophy around having a personal board of advisors, uh, what we typically refer to as, as a mastermind group? I think it's absolutely vital. Mm. I was impacted greatly by things like The Strangest Secret, Earl Nightingale, and then the book Napoleon Hill wrote, Think and Grow Rich, when I was just a teenager. And in his writing, his study, his research of extremely successful men in America over a 20-year period, he never once encountered one of those people who he identified as such, who was not part of a mastermind. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty strong message. So Henry Ford, Andrew Carnegie, Rockefeller, all those guys were part of a mastermind. So I've done a lot of study in that, both from the, the principles there and then looking at people like Benjamin Franklin, who started the Hunter Group in Philadelphia when he was only 26 years old. And out of that group that met for 40 years came the first paved roads, the first public library, the first fire system, the first hospital. They did those things in their community, not hoping for monetary reward because they wanted to elevate their whole community. That's what a mastermind does. But it's it's like having a brain trust. And in today's world, especially for those of us who are entrepreneurs, it's easy to be pretty isolated mm. if we aren't careful. So although I'm energized by solitude, mm. I love time alone, but I recognize the value of connecting with other people where their skills can complement my own and together we can raise the level of success for everybody. So years ago, I started a mastermind with Dave Ramsey, who you know, mutual friend there in Franklin, Tennessee. And I, I said, hey, you select five guys, I'll select five guys. So we met, that made 12 of us together. We met for 14 years, every mm -hmm. Wednesday morning. In that period of time, we watched our kids grow up. We went through all kinds of business growth and transitions. It was a really pivotal time. I've moved away from there, but I still have a mastermind, mm -hmm. uh, much like that, that I meet with every week. Yeah, I consider that to be really, really vital. Mm -hmm. Whose idea was it to bring that crazy Walker guy into the mastermind? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was Dave's, Dave's invitation. Yep. Bring in Big A. I know Big A listens every now and then. So I'm just teasing Big A if you're, if you're tuning in right now. You know, I, I've heard this phrase a lot more, it seems like, in the last few years than I've ever heard it in my life from just the general public, it seems, just, just folks in general. What do you say to someone, Dan, who says, you know, life just isn't fair? Oh, my. <laughs> what they're usually looking at is something that happened to them, be it a flat tire or a business failure. And the, the immediate response is, that shouldn't have happened to me. Mm. And yet when I look back in my life and I see those things that happened that were unwelcomed and unexpected and unfair, perhaps, I see some of the greatest growth, some of the ways my eyes were opened. I mean, I went through a, a business disaster many years ago now, but I had been working with a bank where I had open lines of credit. I mean, I was a good guy, had good relationships, open lines of credit. The bank changed ownership three times in two years. Mm. And all of a sudden, these guys were looking at open lines of credit, this young guy called Dan, and they made it really tough on me, put me in a tight box. I ended up selling a business, a major business at public auction. And the next morning, woke up and realized I was almost half a million dollars in debt. Mm. I mean, that was horrible. It was unfair. I could have pointed fingers at the government, the banks, anything mm. that was out there. Mm. But I didn't do that. 
I, I, that, that kind of leaves me in a lurch where, what am I going to do? So the next morning I got up, looked at the guy in the mirror and said, Hey dude, you got us into this. How are you going to get us out? Mm. And I started walking out that long, painful process. Now here's the deal. I thought as a young entrepreneur, the way to grow a business is you get a bigger building and hire more employees <laughs> in that transition period where I had been a victim of unfairness, perhaps I figured out, I realized there are ways to leverage intellectual property, knowledge, do things like writing, speaking, coaching that require no buildings, no employees, and yet have an upside scalability that is mind-blowing. I would have never seen that had I not gone through those kind of challenges. Mm. So is it unfair? I call it what you want, but it's probably a learning experience. You know, a few years ago, I'll never forget, I was on a treadmill. I was watching CNN and they were interviewing Ted Turner. They said, how did you manage all those years with the Atlanta Braves when you were losing? You know, they had a long streak there where they were losing. Then, of course, ultimately came back and, and won. But he immediately responded. He said, I wasn't losing. I was learning how to win. <laughs> and I thought, wow, what, a, what just a change in mentality. Oh, I love that. If you've been treated unfairly, if you're in a situation that seems challenging, are you losing or are you learning how to win? So I view those times when life treats me unfairly as another opportunity to learn. And another challenging situation you experienced that you talk about in this book that I'm sure tested that mindset was when the city came down on you for this building you had on your property in Franklin oh and the fact that you'd been holding events there and how did you work through that from, from that perspective of mindset and having a positive attitude when it seemed like everything was, was coming against you? That was so challenging because I felt like I was so helpless mm. in many ways. Like I just had no control. If there are things I can do to correct a situation, that's one thing you can see the pattern of walking up. But when you're working with bureaucrats, pencil pushers who just simply say, no, it's not going to happen. I mean, the recommendation for me for our beautiful barn there in our property in Franklin that we call the sanctuary was to bulldoze it, mm. just bulldoze it. I said, well, I don't want to do that. You know, let's look for another situation. Mm. But it, it had to do with, with zoning, with use of the building and all that. And there were other people, even politicians, you know, who said, you'll never get it done because we know the bureaucrats there in your county. It's never going to happen. I said, well, I'm going to continue. It took four years, nine months and three days. Mm. I got a full resolution of that. And in the interim, in those four years, nine months and three days, the value of that property escalated exponentially. Wow. Eight days after I got the judge's sign off, the county attorney and the judge in Williamson County signed off. And eight days later, I sold the property for an exorbitant amount. Mm. So again, it's one of those, wow, was that a blessing or a curse? <laughs> it was gut-wrenching to deal with that. Right. Day after day after day, where it just seemed like it was so hard to make sense of what was happening, what they were requiring. Mm. And yet the persistence, treating people with respect, showing gratitude for the little things that happened, kept things moving along. We finally got the resolution and that was the result. Uh, Dan, talk about the, the idea of balancing the doing with the being. Like, What does that mean? And, and, and what's the difference between the two? And, and, and why does it matter? It does matter. And being a guy who talks about work, you know, I, I help people fight, figure out how to do something meaningful, purposeful, and profitable on Monday morning. That's mm -hmm. the whole scope of my mission. My passion is doing that. But we get pretty wrapped up in this idea of what do you do? 
mean, we meet somewhere. Hi, Jeff, I'm Dan. The next question, what do you do? And we immediately make conclusions about that person's education, value to society, income projections, and all those things based on what do you do? That's a pretty shallow insight into Mm -hmm. another person. And so I want us to slow down to take a breath and recognize what we are becoming is more important than what we're doing. I mean, the things that I do, I love the things that I get to do. But at the end of the day, I need to take a look in the mirror and say, who am I becoming? Who is the person? One of the things that happens in our society that we see so often is as people's financial success increases, they become more and more isolated and alone. And all of a sudden, they've got $10 million in the bank and everybody hates them. Mm. I mean, that's not success in any way that we would define it. So we have to be careful about just using the parameters of success, the old metrics where how much money are you making annually or have, you know, in your financial portfolio, how are you making the world a better place? Mm. You know, what do you do on the weekends? What's a dream you have that hasn't yet been fulfilled? I actually have questions on my phone that I have already access, like when Joanne and I are out eating in a restaurant to ask a waitress or a waiter that comes by, you know, leads to delightful conversations that go beyond just what you do. What you do is here, but why are you working in this job? What mm. is this job allowing you to do in your life that's meaningful? Is there a dream that you haven't yet been able to fulfill? So then those are human being questions, not human doing questions. Oh, I love that. I'm, I'm taking my wife out Friday for our uh, 22nd wedding anniversary. So I'm going to have to remember some of those questions. <laughs> hey, well, congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. And, and for you, it's been, what is it? 54 years now? 55. It 55. Was 55 in March. Uh-huh. Wow. Congratulations. Wow. 55 years. That's amazing. We, we took a cruise. Cruise went down to Cartagena, Colombia and all that. Well, Cartagena. I love saying the term. It just sounds cool. You remember the old movie Romancing the Stone? I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Cartagena, baby. And you know what they were looking for? It was an emerald. Mm-hmm. Now, Colombia, Colombia, Cartagena is the source of more than 60% of the world's emeralds. Mm. So there's that kind of image, that romantic image in our mind as we were going down there. I did a little research. Guess what the stone is for 55th anniversary? Emerald. It is. I mean, talk about a convergence. I I mean, there was no choice. We had to come back with a a little memento for Joanne on her hand. Wow, that's awesome. (laughs) That was. I don't know what I don't know what twenty two is. You'll have to check it out. But I know very clearly that fifty fifth anniversary is emerald. Emerald. Wow, that's cool. Got chills hearing that story. (laughs) You mentioned this uh, Latin term in the book. Amor fati, I think is how it's pronounced. Uh, mm-hmm. What is what is this philosophy, amor fati, and and how does it challenge you specifically? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's a great term. It, it means, in essence, love what is. Mm. Now, again, you know, if you your car engine blows up, it's not just love what is, or Annie falls off a ladder, just love. But in spite of that, to appreciate where you are what your resources are, what you can do to move forward with confidence. So there is that. Again, it's not ignoring negative things, but the, the philosophy is if you do appreciate where you are today, it gives you a starting point to move forward positively. The alternative just isn't attractive at all. If you're angry, resentful, guilty, unforgiving, 
well, what are you going to, where are you going to go from there? You have to get past those things, right. you know, in, in working with people as a career coach for many years now, when I hear people talk about anger, resentment, guilt, unforgiveness, even depression, I know they're looking backward at what has already happened. As soon as we can get a clear glimpse of the future of what that would look like. And we start, and those negative emotions start to diminish rapidly and we get a sense of enthusiasm, hope, and joy moving forward. But if, if somebody's experiencing those things, they're looking backward. Well, more fatigue is in that same vein. Mm-hmm. If you're looking forward, you always can have hope. If you're looking forward, if you're looking backward, it can get you stuck where you are. There's, there's a quote in the book that I very much identified with or would have uh, when I was in my twenties, uh, as I think uh, you were you in your twenties. I think this is when uh, the time frame is when this, when you were feeling this way. And the quote is this, if I got serious about my relationship with God, uh, I was afraid that he'd send me to a place I least wanted to go and that the work I would do would be the work that I least wanted to do. Kind of like that song, please don't, you know, God, please don't send me to Africa. Right. That's right. Today, you're a writer. Uh, you're not a missionary per se. Uh, how did you yeah. come to a place of recognizing your calling? Now, that was a big theological moment for me because, again, being raised as I was raised, there was that sense that, that a few people were called and they were going to be pastors, missionaries, evangelists. You know, the rest of us, eh, maybe just kind of sliding by, but our lives probably weren't worth that much. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that if you really leaned into and opened yourself up to what God wanted, it probably lead you into something that you didn't really enjoy. But by golly, you're just bearing your cross. You're just grinding it out because it's God's will, not yours. I had a cousin, a first cousin, who was a missionary to Africa. She was much older than I, and it really stood out because it was so unusual. She would leave on a boat, go to Africa. If we wrote letters, it was on that little uh, light onion skin parchment paper, you know, that you would send airmail and it'd get there three months later and then you'd get a response. Mm. That was my idea of really submitting to God. And Mm. that terrified me. I thought I would be miserable there. Well, as I grew in my own faith and understanding, hopefully, not to just make it easy for myself, but I realized I wouldn't be effective doing that. Mm. I'd be horrible doing that. So if I lean in again to what we talked about previously are the things that I already enjoyed, where I already had a seed of a talent, where I could already nurture that and become really good at something, that's my best opportunity to have a positive influence, not to try to do something that I wouldn't do well. So yeah, that was a big revelation to me to figure that out and to bask in that wonderful feeling. This is what I was born to do. And when you say I'm a writer, not a missionary, yeah, you know, it begs the question, or am I? Yeah. I, I'm confident my impact has been much greater, much broader doing what I do well than living in a little village in Africa somewhere trying to do something that I did not do well. When I hear the stories, the testimonials about people who've read my books, I mean, it's totally humbling to get the kind of responses back. Oh my goodness. But I'm, I'm grateful for that. Mm. But I'm, I have a lot of affirmation that I'm doing my calling in every bit as much authentically as a missionary pastor or evangelist. What haven't I asked, or is there anything I haven't asked with regard to the book that you'd love to point out? Maybe it's a particular entry that's popular or what have you. Anything come to mind that you wished I would have asked? Well, you know, I have a compilation of so much in this book. I mean, these are, as you 
uh, explained at the beginning, they're not connected. It's not one theme, one thought, one principle, five steps to this or anything. It's a compilation of Sunday morning writings that I did over a period of four years that I called Sabbath musings. So there's a lot of things that are not seemingly just tied together. And I love people's response to different ones that seem to really touch them. Mm. But one one thing that I think kind of comes out as a concept is, is this, it's never too late to have a new beginning. Mm. I talked to so many people who think, mm. oh, I made mistakes. Gee, I shouldn't have gone to law school. I should have done something else. And they imply, you know, at 45 years old that, gee, my life is over. Now I'm just going to kind of coast into the grave. And I'm like, oh my goodness, don't do that. <laughs> you're still learning how to ask the right questions. So I don't care if you're 18 or 38 or 68 or 88, it's never too late to have a new beginning. Mm. Yeah, I, I published a book at 55, so <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> All right. uh, I could have at that age could have decided, oh, it's too late. That ship has sailed, but uh, hey, better late than never, right? I, I want to ask you, too, just about the journey of writing the book. You, you mentioned sort of the Sunday morning musings, um, and you mentioned earlier, too, that, that you've enjoyed working on this book more than any other. Talk about sort of the unusual nature of this book, what went into putting it together and getting it published and the format of it all and everything. When we work with publishers, as you well know, publishers are pretty clear on what is going to be marketable and how we need to get that out there. And that has to do with a traditional trade book. You know, it's 70,000 words, 240 pages. And we've gone away from dust jackets for the most part and mm. the other kind of covers that we got. But they got these real clear things. And if anything, it's how to deliver it faster and cheaper. Mm. Well, I come along and I want a book that's heavy in your hand, that's <laughs> soft when you bend it, you know, that's smaller than a normal cut on a book mm. and that has images and color all the way through. I want a satin bookmark in there so you can mark where you are, because as you said, you don't need to just read it straight. You can read it anywhere, mm. start again the next day. And I purposely, I didn't want 365. I don't particularly care for those. That way, if you miss one, then you're, then you've, you're, you're behind somehow. No, I don't want that. You can pick it up anytime, any day, go through it. But when in talking about the things that I've done with this book, it's everything that publishers absolutely <laughs> tell you you can't be can't do. And then I put it in a box. It comes with a custom-made box. It's a hard mm. box with quotations mm. around the edges. So it's not like what you would see on a bookshelf in mm. a store, in a Barnes and Noble or somewhere. All those things are just no, 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 no. As you know what? I don't care. I, want, I know I had such a clear image of what I wanted. Right. I wanted it to look like it's, it's a sensory project. You know, you touch and feel and smell and all those things. Yeah. So it's very much a passion project. As I mentioned earlier, not, mm. not really a solid business decision, but I absolutely mm. love what it is. And, and I love people's responses to it and people, you know, put it on the coffee table instead of just another book on the shelf somewhere. Right. And, and, and even in the being counterintuitive in how it was put together and formed and created, the concepts inside are that as well. I do a lot of kind of poking people with their static thinking, <laughs> poking <laughs> traditions yeah, and just old things that have been part of our culture that we kind of brought along with us. Why do you really think that? Is there another way to respond in that situation? So I do a lot of that as well. So I wanted the whole thing to be a little bit counterintuitive. Now, I'm not going to have some nasty, you know, vulgarity on the front cover, try and just titillate people, do something that's just outrageous. Not at all. Mm. I want it to be very warm and loving and kind and again, gr grateful, all those kind of things. Mm. 
But even, even with that, it can still be very, very different than what people are used to. And that is the response that I'm mm. getting to the book. Right. Um, and I'm not mistaken, is it only available on your website? Is that right? Or is it available elsewhere? You know, it's only available on my website. And the reason is because the, the mathematics don't work for Amazon. <laughs> right. Right. If I, if I have a, uh, the retail price on it, I actually priced the book at $99 and then being 48 days with our brand, we reduce that. It is actually, you can buy for $48, but when you reduce that down with the reduction that Amazon requires, it, I would lose money in every book they sold. Mm. So it's only available on my website because of that. Now, the interesting thing is, and I, I published this myself and yet I didn't really, I still plugged into Morgan James on the back end for distribution. Right. So it is available. You can order it through any place. It still comes back to my website and all that. But the funny thing is in define what publishers look for. I now have publishers knocking on my door wanting to purchase these books from me, the <laughs> author, to then resell through traditional distribution. Is that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. You know, I want to ask you, you were one of those students who went through note-making mastery a few months back. So I'd love to know how your process has changed when it comes to collecting notes, interacting with your, the knowledge that you're saving, creating with it, all those things that we talk about in, in the cohort. Anything, any, any shifts for you? Any, any new ways of doing things that you weren't before? Yeah, very much so. I thoroughly enjoyed your class. I've been <laughs> Thank you. a voracious reader for many, many years, mm. you know, all my life. I mean, I grew up in our, in our home being so legalistic. We didn't have radio or TV, but we did have books. And I had access to the little county library where I could ride my bike up there. And I just absorbed books, you know, those old Horatio Alger stories and Rags to Riches and all that got mm. me started. And on to things like The Strangest Secret, Think and Grow Rich and Magic of Thinking Big and all those. But I love reading. Reading has been the door to bigger opportunities for me mm. forever. As a poor little farm kid, reading is what inspired my thinking. Wow, I could do more, be more, have more, go more by doing these things. And it opened my eyes to that. So I read. But my concern in coming into your class was that I still am challenged by going to my bookshelves and pulling off a book that I read three years ago or five years ago, mm -hmm. you know, and remembering what did I really value in there? Now, when I read, I'm like you, I tag my books over and over again. I underline and tag them so I can readily access that. When I walk in the morning, I carry a pad of post-it notes in my pocket, literally. I, I know there are ways to electronically record your thoughts and all that. But for me, the tactile process of writing really helps me solidify an idea. So I actually stop walking or stop on a treadmill and with the thought, I pause it and I write things down on these little post-it notes. So I come back like, mm -hmm. this morning, I came back, you know, to these little post-it notes full of things that, that was where my challenge was when I came to your class. Mm -hmm. What do I do then with all of that? I have adapted notion mm -hmm. as the app that I use. Now, I know you mentioned multiples in your class. I've adapted that because I had a couple of people coach me on that and mm. I found it to be wonderful. Mm. So then I take, after I read or listen and I write down notes in multiple places, then I put them in Notion where then it's easy to access. So if I have a section in there on passion or faith and entrepreneurship, you know, it, areas like that, mm. I can put in all my notes. It's all there, readily accessible. And then with simple searches, I can find it all right there. And that's been a real move forward for me to be able to categorize it and have it in one place like that. 
Mm, I love that. That's that's another chill bump moment. <laughs> Appreciate you sharing that. Uh, well, Dan's book is is one I definitely recommend you check out and pick up, and it makes a fantastic gift. And Christmas is not that far away, so buy a copy for the whole family. It's called An Understanding Heart. Uh, his name is Dan Miller. He was the first ever guest on this podcast, and he's also the four hundred and eighty eighth guest on <laughs> this podcast. So, Dan, thank you so much for. For being here. Really appreciate it. Well, absolutely. And then congratulations on your 10-year anniversary in your podcast. Thank you so much. You know, as I often do, I didn't ask Dan about specific books he'd recommend, but you can't have a conversation with Dan Miller without books being mentioned, like The Strangest Secret, Think and Grow Rich, The Magic of Thinking Big. I'll put links to each of those at the show notes page for this episode. There you'll also find links to Dan's content and how to connect with Dan online if you choose. That's all at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 488 for episode 488. I've also got links there to my book, Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career, plus a convenient link to the Read to Lead community online. We'd love to have you as our newest member. Don't forget right now, you can try it free for 14 days. One more time, readtoleadpodcast.com slash 488 is where you'll find all of that. Next week on the podcast, we talk with someone who's making a return visit, their second visit to Read to Lead. That's Michael Bungay-Stanier. He wrote the best-selling book, The Coaching Habit. His latest book is called How to Work with Almost Anyone. Again, he's our guest next week right here on the Read to Lead podcast. Hope you'll come back. That does it for this go-around. Remember, as always, leaders read and readers lead. Oh,